Matut Marseille, my teacher in memoriam. There are moments when divine providence touches you on the shoulder and makes you see a certain truth with blazing clarity. Let me share with you such a moment that happened to me as I was writing this covenant and conversation. For technical reasons, I have to write these essays many weeks in advance. I'd come to Matot Marseille and had decided to write about the cities of refuge, but I wasn't sure which aspect to focus on. Suddenly, overwhelmingly, I felt an instinct to write about one very unusual law. We know the cities were set aside for the protection of those found guilty of manslaughter, that is, of killing someone accidentally without malice or forethought. Because of the then universal practice of blood vengeance, that protection was necessary. The purpose of the cities was to make sure that someone judged innocent of murder was safe from being killed. As Shoftim puts it, and he shall flee to one of these cities and live. This apparently simple concept was given a remarkable interpretation by the Gemara. The sages taught if a student was exiled, his teacher was exiled with him, as it is said, and live, meaning do the things for him that will enable him to live. Maimonides explains life without study is like death for scholars who seek wisdom. In Judaism, study is life itself, and study without a teacher is impossible. Teachers give us more than just knowledge, they give us life. Now, this isn't an agadic passage, a moralizing text, not meant to be taken literally. It's actually a halachic ruling codified as such, nor is it a stray text out of keeping with the rest of Jewish law. To the contrary, Jewish law rules as follows. Just as one is commanded to honor his father and fear him, so he is obliged to honor his teacher and fear him, yet more than his father, because his father brought him to life in this world, but his teacher who taught him wisdom brings him to life in the world to come. If you find a lost article of your father and a lost article of your teacher, restoring that of your teacher takes precedence over that of your father. If the teacher and the father are both burdened with the load, he should unburden his teacher's load first and then that of his father. If his father and his teacher are incarcerated in a prison, he should first free his teacher and then his father. Note again the forcefulness of these laws. A teacher is more than the parent. A parent gives you Physical life, a teacher gives you spiritual life. Physical life is mortal, transient. Spiritual life is eternal. Therefore, we owe our teacher life in its deepest sense. Now, I'd just written that text above when the phone went. It was my brother in Jerusalem to tell me that my teacher, Rabbi Nachum Eliezer Rabinovich, Zechet Tzadik Livrocha, had just died. Only rarely in this world of concealment do we feel the touch of providence, but this was unmistakable for me, and I suspect everyone who had the privilege of studying with him. He was the greatest teacher of our generation. He was a master posik, as those who've read his responsa will know. He knew the entire rabbinic literature, Bavli, Yerushalmi, Midrash, Halacha, and Agadah, biblical commentaries, philosophy, codes, and responsa. His creativity, halachic and agadic, knew no bounds. He was a master of almost every 
secular discipline, especially the sciences. He'd been a professor of mathematics at the University of Toronto and had written a book about probability and statistical inference. His supreme passion was the Rambam in all his guises, especially the Mishnah Torah to which he devoted some 50 years of his life to writing the multi-volume commentary Yad Peshuttah. By the time I came to study with the Rav, I'd already studied at Cambridge and Oxford with some of the greatest intellects of the time, among them Sir Roger Scruton and Sir Bernard Williams. Rabbi Rabinovich was more demanding than either of them. Only when I became his student did I learn the true meaning of intellectual rigor, shetihu amelim batorah, laboring in the Torah. To survive his scrutiny, you had to do three things. First, read everything ever written on the subject. Second, analyze it with complete lucidity, searching for omekapshat, the deep, plain sense. And thirdly, to think independently and critically. I remember writing an essay for him in which I quoted one of the most famous of 19th century Talmudic scholars. He read what I'd written and then he turned to me and said, but you didn't criticize what he wrote. He thought that in this case, the scholar had not given the correct interpretation, and I should have seen and said this. For him, intellectual honesty and independence of mind were inseparable from the quest for truth, which is what Talmud Torah must always be. Some of the most important lessons I learned from him were almost accidental. I remember on one occasion his car was being serviced, so I had the privilege of driving him home. It was a hot day, and at a busy junction in Hampstead my car stalled. Unfazed, Rabbi Rabinovich said to me, let's use the time to learn Torah. He then proceeded to give me a share on Rambam's Il Around us, cars were hooting their horns. We were holding up traffic, and a considerable queue had developed. The Rav remained completely calm, came to the end of his exposition, turned to me and said, Now, turn the key. I turned the key, the car started, and we went on our way. On another occasion, I told him about my problem getting to sleep. I'd become an insomniac. He said to me enthusiastically, Could you teach me how to do that? He quoted the Rambam, who ruled that one acquires most of one's wisdom at night, based on the Talmudic statement that the night was created for study. He and the late Rebaran Lichtenstein were the Gedolei Hador, the leaders and role models of their generation. They were very different, one scientific, the other artistic, one direct, the other oblique, one bold, the other cautious, but they were giants intellectually, morally and spiritually. Happy, the generation that is blessed by people like these. It's hard to convey what having a teacher like Rabbi Rabinovich meant. He knew, for example, that I had to learn fast, because I was coming to the rabbinate late after a career in academic philosophy. What he did was very bold. He explained to me that the fastest and best way of learning anything is to teach it. So the day I entered Jews College as a student, I also entered it as a lecturer. How many people would have had that idea and taken that risk? He also understood how lonely it could be if you lived by the principles of intellectual integrity and independence. Early on, he said to me, don't be surprised if only six people in the world understand what you're trying to do. When I asked him whether I should accept the position of chief rabbi, he said in his laconic way, why not? After all, maybe you can teach some Torah. He himself, in his early thirties, 
had been offered the job of chief rabbi of Johannesburg, but turned it down on the grounds that he refused to live in an apartheid state. He told me how he was visited in Toronto by Rabbi Louis Rabinowitz, who had held the Johannesburg position until then. Looking at the Rav's modest home and thinking of his more palatial accommodation in South Africa, he said, you turned down that for this? But the Rav would never compromise his integrity and never cared for material things. In the end, he found great happiness. In the 37 years he served as head of Yeshivat Birkat Moshe in Male Adumim. The yeshiva had been founded six years earlier by Rabbi Chaim Sabato and Yitzchak Shelat. And it's said that when Rabbi Sabato heard the Rav give a shia, he immediately asked him to become the Rosh Yeshiva. It's hard to describe the pride with which he spoke to me about his students, all of whom served in the Israel Defense Force. Likewise, it's hard to describe the awe in which his students held him. Not everyone in the Jewish world knew his greatness, but everyone who studied with him did. I believe that Judaism made an extraordinarily wise decision. When it made teachers its heroes and lifelong education its passion, we don't worship power or wealth. These things have their place, but not at the top of the hierarchy of values. Power forces us. Wealth induces us. But teachers develop us. They open us to the wisdom of the ages, helping us to see the world more clearly, think more deeply, argue more cogently, and decide more wisely. Let the reverence for your teacher be like the reverence for heaven, said the sages. In other words, if you want to come close to heaven, don't search for kings, priests, saints, or even prophets. They may be great, but a fine teacher helps you to become great. And that's a different thing altogether. I was blessed by having one of the greatest teachers of our generation. The best advice I can give anyone is, find a teacher. Then, make yourself a disciple. Shabbat Shalom.